1: Or just look us up on your podcast app. That's The Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War. On this episode of our Spanish Civil War interview series, I was joined by Dr. Matthew Carey, the author of Unite Proletarian Brothers, Radicalism and Republicanism in the Second Spanish Republic, which was released earlier this year. Our discussion focused on the events in Asturias, a region in Spain, in 1934, During October 1934, there would be a national strike throughout Spain, and in most areas this strike would either quickly burn out or would be broken up by the government. However, in Asturias, the strike would morph into a true revolution, and for two weeks Asturias would be under the control of revolutionary committees. In the end, 1,700 people would be killed in the region, and 260 members of the Spanish military would be included in that number. One of the topics that we touch on near the end of this interview and which I think is really important, is the role that Asturias would play in Franco's narrative of imminent and very possible revolution during and after the events of the Civil War. And then I bumped my microphone. Okay. Hello everyone and welcome to the Spanish Civil War interview series. Today I'm here with Dr. Matthew Carey, the author of Unite Proletarian Brothers, Radicalism and Republicanism in the Second Spanish Republic. Dr. Carey, how's it going today?
2: It's not too bad, to be honest. It could be a lot worse in the circumstances. Um, Indeed. (laughs) Very happy to be here.
1: 2020 has been a year, is is all I will say. Definitely. Um, Okay, so when I think about socialist revolutionary activity. And I think this is probably pretty common among the people listening to this. I think of urban centers, St. Petersburg, Berlin, Vienna, Paris, but Asturias, where this Asturias revolution takes place is a region full of coal fields and related economic activity, which doesn't seem very urban to me. Uh, So what was this area like in terms of population and density and stuff like that?
2: Well, it's an area, so Asturias is a region which um, has, it's, it's varied, it's very mountainous, it's coastal, there is agriculture, um, and then as you say, there's this um, kind of coal mining area to the south of the capital. Um, and this is an area that, although compared to somewhere like the Ruhr in Germany, is quite ruralized, it is nonetheless quite heavily urbanised within its wider context. So we're talking about several steep-sided kind of winding areas. Um, valleys um, in which uh, roughly about 150,000 people live Um, and they live in quite different circumstances depending on the particular area. So lower down the valleys you have larger, denser settlements um, with more industry, steel industry, coal so shafts into the into the coal pits themselves but then as you go further up the valleys you get more agricultural activity, um, more mountain mines so mines dug into the side of mountains themselves and the population here can be quite widely dispersed. So um, you have quite a, 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 sometimes thousands living in, a, in the kind of the, the capital of a particular district and then lots of people who are living in quite small um, hamlets and villages that are kind of more dotted around kind of the, the, the hillsides and, um, and further up into the mountains. And in terms of Oviedo itself, so the capital of the region, um, this is seen and traditionally is very much kind of the bourgeois city of services, of banking um, and around 75,000 people lived in the kind of the municipal district of um, Oviedo of itself. Um, but in the capital it's only about half of that population, the rest, um live in um, rural areas but also kind of um industrial towns that kind of near the capital producing arms explosives and things like cement so i suppose the asturias region the coal fields themselves are quite distinctive to an extent and um, they're quite typical i suppose of the north of spain but quite different to areas of the south we're talking about area um an area that's in terms of, the, of its population, is very different to Madrid and Barcelona and somewhere like Bilbao, of course, with its iron mines, but also quite different to the south of Spain, where you have the agro towns, um, these kind of very large towns full of um, kind of um, agricultural um, workers. Um, it definitely, in that in that sense, is much more rural than than other than other areas of Europe.
1: Excellent. And so this area has a kind of a mix of. Uh, leftist ideological beliefs, much like every other place in Spain at this period, um, could, could you discuss sort of what the mix was in terms of uh, of those beliefs in this area and how they kind of uh, coexisted at this time?
2: Yes, yeah, certainly. So, that in terms of the left itself, and the, the, it's important to, to note as well that there's also a strong strand of republicanism gen, uh, um, as well, which. We generally identify more with the centre. But in terms of the left, we have communists, anarchists and socialists. So all three exist in this particular area. And they're organised in 1931 into two unions um, in, in terms of the coal fields, in terms of the, the mine workers themselves. And numerically and institutionally, it's the socialists who are the strongest. They have the largest mining union, um, although it undergoes a, an important crisis in the 1920s during the Primo de Rivera dictatorship. And it's it's strong institutionally because it has a, a large network of political and cultural um, centres, um, lots of associations. It has its own schools for children, um, lending libraries, cooperatives, and along et cetera. Um, and the Socialists and the the membership is recovering in one thousand, nine hundred and thirty-one, and they are and they take um, and they take advantage really uh, of the um, of the of the prestige of being involved in. Um, the kind of the proclamation of the Second Republic and therefore they attract many um, supporters, many of those who of course des- deserted them in the 1920s. So then, then we have the anarchists and the communists and numerically the anarchists are, there are more anarchists than there are communists in the, in the coal fields and they both traditionally are identified with particular localities. So the anarchists tend to be identified with somewhere like La Felguera which was a steel town um, and it was a particular area of um, anarchist um, strength. And the communists are often um, uh, identified with Turon, which is this, this, this particular valley um, in which that one particular um, mining company, um, in which one particular mining company operated. But actually, I think if you dig a bit deeper, then these different groups um, exist, these ideologies exist all over the place in smaller pockets. Um, and so I mentioned the fact that there were two unions. So there's the Socialist Union, and then there is the Sum Union, as it's called, the kind of Single Mine Workers Union. This is led by communists, but the rank and file are anarchists, which is not really a very stable combination, though. A- communist <laughs> uh, emphasis on hierarchy um, and, and the anarchist kind of um, free thinking um, and kind of um, direct action um, strategies. And this comes to a head in 1931. So there's a strike just after the republics um, proclaimed, and it's it's a it's a real um, kind of battle between the socialist uh, mining union and this kind of anarchist communist mining union. It's a bit of a stalemate. Um, the the anarchist communist union declares it, but doesn't really win. Um, and actually, that union ends up splitting by the end of the year because of the tensions um, inherent within it. And so, there's often been an emphasis in the in in from historians about this about this place of the emphasis on a rival between these different unions that socialists and anarchists and communists didn't get on, uh, which is a story that we might be very kind of familiar with. Um, But I think, I mean, what I've tried to to emphasize in in my work and what I've seen is there's actually quite a lot of workplace cooperation at times. It's not always easy um, and there's a lot of resentment, um, but there are shared practices like assemblies at the pits when there's a strike and then there'll be there'll be votes. Um, there are debates, um, often quite fractious debates um, between these different groups. Um, and, there's, and, there's, and, and but this collaboration is often um, at the grassroots, and the union leaderships, particularly the socialist union leadership, does not like the, the rank and file working with the other group. And the other thing I suppose that's important to um, to, to, to mention is the Workers Alliance, which is. Um, emblematic of the revolution of 1934 and it's this it's an agreement signed in late March 1934 um, and it's seen as the moment in which the anarchists and the socialists put the differences aside and work together um, organize the revolution and and you know this is, and this is pro- profoundly important for kind of the rest of um the history of the left through the civil war itself this cooperation between the two my, my view of the workers alliance is more complicated i don't think it was quite as easy as that. Um, there are a lot of anarchists in the coalfields for example who don't actually like this alliance um, and it was only narrowly ratified by the anarchist organization in September 1934. Um, and so I think if you look beyond the leadership and the agreements the leaderships are signing things are both kind of are much more complicated in practice, both more collaboration but also more friction.
1: You mentioned that there was a socialist, communist, and anarchist presence within these various unions. What was the general relationship between the size of these groups uh, within the larger union structure?
2: The trade union density is really high um, okay. in, in this area during the, the Second Republic. And when it, when it comes to the, the figures for the, for, the, for, the, um, for the mine workers themselves, the vast majority do belong to a union. What is quite interesting, I suppose, in 1933, there is a there is a bit of a shift. So there's been a battle between these different unions to try and capture as many mine workers as possible, and to capture members from different um, unions. 1933, there are these kind of grassroots um, committees, strike committees, in which mine workers would elect as well as a socialist delegate, anarchist delegate and a communist delegate, they elect a delegate for the unaffiliated as well, there's a recognition that there are a small, and it is a small minority, who do not belong to um, the the socialist, anarchist or communist um, ranks, and that they should also have a voice in these committees, which is quite striking, particularly when the socialists are so overwhelmingly powerful um, institutionally. That they have the vast majority of the mine workers are signed up to the Socialist um, Mining Union.
1: Interesting. Um, so in the years before the Spanish Civil War, you know, from the founding of the the Republic in, in 31 and forward, is a kind of a turbulent political period for Spain. And I know that in in nineteen thirty three the Spanish elections saw a a more traditional conservative government elected uh nineteen thirty three for most people know, is also kind of a turbulent year in other countries, perhaps in Germany. Um, was there anything about the events that were happening elsewhere in the world that fueled concerns in Spain, especially among you know the people we're talking about right now on the Spanish left? Um, about how they hope to prevent sort of the repression that they saw in other countries at this time.
2: Yeah, yes and no. I think I think it's it's difficult, and we can look at this at different levels. Um, I think when we look at the kind of the national level and the national or the socialist movement on a national level, I shouldn't say national socialist movement because in this particular issue, it comes even more <laughs> comes even more complicated. But in terms of the socialist movement. Um, there is, a, there is a particular figure, Francisco Largo Caballero, hugely important um, Minister of Labour at the beginning of the Republic. Um, and he becomes kind of the leader of both the party and um, the socialist trade union between, between thirty three and 1934. Um, and he's the one who is kind of the brains, supposedly behind the 1934 revolution. And there's a, and there's a, there's a socialist who's a particular influence on, on him, um, who is in fact the ambassador to Germany through 1932 and 33, So he sees kind of the, the, the crisis of the, the kind of the end of the Weimar regime and, um, and he feeds through, through his writings and through his reports um, into the, to the socialist movement what is going on in Germany. So there is certainly an awareness of what's going on in Germany. Now if you look at the level of what's happening in, um, in Asturias what I've tracked is the emergence really of the word fascist in the press, in the socialist press um, in Asturias. That really only happens after the after Hitler um, becomes um, chancellor um, in early 1933. So there is kind of, you know, there, there is a, an awareness uh, of, of fascism. Um, there's not really an understanding of what fascism really is, um, particularly how fascism would work in Spain. Um, given its kind of Catholic traditions or a particular Catholic part to the political culture, um, and, and and given um, the way that um, in the majority party on the right was very Catholic, it, it, it wasn't exactly clear how um, fascism would work in Spain. Um, and it, it's not clear really whether fascism is just a way of repressing the left or whether it is a more generative um, um political project in its own right and i think that, it, that there there is really a, a lack of understanding of what's going on and it's easy to dismiss fascism as ju- in the marxist way as it was at the time as um as simply kind of the the, the an, another crisis or the final crisis of um of, of kind of of capitalism itself and so through 1933 there's both a, a kind of a lack of understanding but also kind of a a, a, a um also a dismissal of it that there doesn't really seem to be fascism in a Spanish context, which is true in in the sense that the the Spanish fascist party, as we know it, the Falange was only founded at the end of 1933. Um, And so there is, I I, I don't really see much of a learning of what, um, of of lessons from Germany, so to speak, in 1933 itself. 1934, in the wake of the elections, and, and with the change in government, there's greater fear. There's a much sharper edge to kind of the political struggles in 1934. Um, the socialists seem particularly impacted by what happens in Austria. So the, so the crushing of the Austrian socialist movement, um, and and I think it's that it's not lost on them that Dolphus, um as a Catholic authoritarian leader, is perhaps closer to what they would see um, in. Spain and it also I think is not lost on them as well that compared to Hitler who was installed in power and, and kind of things change from one day to another, Dolphus, what you see with Dolphus um, in the words of, um, uh, of Tim Kirk is this salami slicing of, of, of the socialist movement and, of kind of, and, and the erosion of democracy and therefore I think there is this fear of a gradual slide into authoritarianism and potentially fascism in the future. And so the remedy for all of this that's, that's talked about and is shouted about in the press is, is some kind of working class unity. But I don't really see a kind of a real um, strong kind of analysis of what's gone on in Germany and what the problem is um, at this moment in time. And there seems to be kind of this fleeing, there's a phrase in Spanish of kind of fleeing forwards towards this planning of the insurrection that this seems to be the solution, you know. Um, attack is the best form of defense to an extent um, and that is, I suppose is where the um, the revolution of 1934 can
1: be positioned. Okay and speaking of, of that 1934 revolution uh, there was a a general strike or a call for a general strike um, in, in late 1934 um, and these strikes would occur in many areas of Spain it seems like and there would be some violence um, but it was only in Asturias that it ended up being a, a sustained revolution. How did it only happen in one place? Like what happened uh, elsewhere to where they sort of backed out or, or whatever happened in those areas? Uh, and was it simply the fact that those others didn't necessarily fail? It's just, it just so happened to only work
2: in Asturias. It's a very interesting question and I'm not sure really that anyone has really answered this adequately to my mind and I also include myself in that. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think one of the questions that, I've tr- that I was driving my research and one of the things that I, I tried to answer was the the energy behind the, the revolt in Asturias and why thousands of men in particular, a few women but mainly men, you know, took up arms against the government and trying to understand exactly how you get that 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 switch um and that ability to, to you know to turn on the government um that and i think i yeah i've provided my answer to that in terms of radicalism or radicalization in in my work but that doesn't really answer why um asturias in, in stu- the, the revolt was relatively successful as in it lasted for two weeks whereas um, everywhere else it didn't last quite as long i think there's something distinctive about Asturias, and then there are kind of and, and these relate to the factors in, in other areas as well. So I think I think when it comes to Asturias itself and its relative success, I think firstly there is a relative strength of organization and a force of numbers. Um, and this relates both to and well, so there's a relative strength of numbers and also the weakness of the security services and and, um, and, the, and the army itself. So you have thousands of men um, who are members of trade unions who've been, some of them have been in, in, in terms of socialists have been in training, a bit ad hoc, but some kind of training and also the stockpiling of arms um, ahead of, of of this insurrection. So they are to an extent prepared and they are used to kind of to being organized in, in the trade union itself. And so you have a, a An area in which there are thousands, you know, there is this particular trade union density, they are, um, you have force of numbers, you have small outposts of the police, of the security forces and of the army itself, so they can, they were overwhelmed relatively quickly and when it comes to Oviedo itself, the capital, and this is the scene of most of the fighting during the insurrection, um, again um, this isn't a a massive outpost for the army for example, so I think in that respect um, that, that is one of the first factors that I think is quite important for why it's relatively successful. Secondly, they're relatively well equipped in that they do have some arms, they run out quite quickly, but they do have arms and they have dynamite. The miners have dynamite and this is, it becomes a useful weapon of, of war. Um, geography, I think, is the third factor which is important. We're talking about kind of narrow mining valleys um, that they managed to gain get, get hold of um, very quickly. Um, um, But it also is quite difficult to move from León, which is to the south um, and and the beginning of the Meseta, so the central plains of Spain, Um, and there's a column of of, um, an army column that tries to uh, um, kind of invade um, Asturias um, and quickly becomes bogged down in fighting with the miners because the miners are quite adept at holding this particularly, um, this mountainous country. And it means as well that um, troops have to be sent by sea, all the way around the coast, so it takes a while for reinforcements to, arrive, reinforcements to arrive. So I think those particular factors are important, and so in Madrid, for example, where you have a strike that lasts a fair few days. This is, it's much more difficult to gain hold of Madrid as a as a as a, as a kind of um, as a group of militias. Um, there is not the strength in numbers at the same time in terms of um, the amount of workers, um, the CNT the, the anarchists don't uh, don't agree with the strike, they don't sign up to it. There seems to be a lack of leadership in Madrid as well, and there's, there's also much many more army garrisons, so it's much more difficult to a military hold of uh, hold of the, um, of the capital when it comes to somewhere like Andalusia in the south. The story um, that's usually told, and I think it's is, is pretty convincing, is that there was an important agricultural strike in, in June um, 1934, so only th- three, four months earlier. And what this means is um, that, and this was crushed, so the socialist organizations, which have been powerful, um, were both exhausted, disarticulated, um, some people have been arrested, um, It was very difficult to organize uh, and to prepare for some sort of vaguely defined revolutionary movement. The Basque Country, I think it's no coincidence. This is the area where you see kind of the the strongest um, reaction um, along with um, Asturias itself, um, particularly around Bilbao. And these, again, are kind of a very dense industrial area um, that haven't been exhausted by an agricultural strike in the same way that South has. Um, and so here and there are also arms um, factories dotted around Ibar and, uh, and the like so there you also you have arms you have um, a, a proletariat who is willing to, to use them and therefore you know, that is why there is a more sustained revolt there as well. Events in Catalonia I think are quite different so in the midst of the crisis um, the beginning of these kind of strikes and insurrections um, on, on the 6th from the fifth, fifth to the sixth of um, October, nineteen thirty-four, um, Luis Compange, the the president of the um, of the um, the Catalan region, um, declares a, 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 a Catalan state within a federal republic. So I think there there are factors at play in Catalonia which are quite different to the the rest of um, to the to this socialist uprising in in kind of the rest of Spain. Campanje is taking advantage of this crisis, um, he is um, a Catalan nationalist um, and there is a long-running um, matter in Catalonia around um, a, a particular form of agrarian reform which has uh, caused a government crisis, uh, government crisis over the summer. So th- there is there is kind of friction and resentment between um, the Catalan nationalists and Madrid and I think this is what leads to a very short, lived it barely lasts 12 hours, um, this um, Catalan Republic within a a federal state.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile ups. Ugh, oh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit EnergyCitizens.org, paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
3: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast.
1: Interesting. So, you mentioned that in Asturias, this this kind of continues for a couple of weeks. And so, how was the revolution controlled during those two weeks? Were there revolutionary committees? How, how were they organized and, and coordinated?
2: Yeah, so that there are a number of, of revolutionary committees um, there is a what is called and it styles itself as the provincial revolutionary committees and then a series of kind of local level committees itself themselves. Um, and the provincial level committees seem to be very much to be in control of the of, of the insurrection and, and it's identified with particularly prominent figures um, like Bellamino Tomas who um, um, is 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 the man who um, the socialist and he's a prominent socialist from the coalfields who um, negotiates the kind of the surrender of the forces at the end of the insurrection. Um, González Pena, Ramón González Pena, is seen as the the generalissimo of the of the insurrection itself, and he's also a, a member. I I am not convinced that this committee was in control of what was going on always in the insurrection itself. I think it's an important figurehead. Um, it is for the first few days um, positioned in Oviedo, which is the front, basically. This is the streets of the capital where they, the militias are fighting against um, the government forces. Um, they're certainly issuing, issuing a lot of, um, kind of decrees and trying to find out what is going on in a lot of the, in lot of the local level committees, but I'm not convinced they are, they have a, a strong control over it. That said, I don't see in the accounts um, and in the documents any real sense of um, a huge amount of lawlessness. I think these committees, the committees do take power quite quickly and they have a clear monopoly on power, um, which I think is quite important um, for the level of violence in the insurrection itself. So if we go down to the local level committees, these um, compared to, say, at the end of the First World War, when we have the... Um, Kind of council communism, the committees in Asturias here in 1934 are not, for example, um, based at the factory or the mine. They're based very much in the at the level of the locality. So we have them springing up in villages and towns, and the ones in the larger towns have a certain amount of prestige and um, and exert a certain amount of control over smaller. Um, more local committees as well. And these are formed, so although the, the insurrection is um, led by the socialists, or sparked by the socialists, um, these committees tend to have a, a real variety of members of um, left-wing organisations, of socialists, anarchists and, and communists, and even dissident communists as well. Um, and it seems that there, there really was a, a commitment, or a, a, um, an attempt to recognise that although, for example, in Miri's the number of dissident communists was really a handful, or a couple of handfuls um, at most. Um, they deserved a delegate, that so although the socialists outnumbered them by many, many, many to one, um, it made sense to actually give everybody a voice um, in, in a, a certain democratic um, manner. So we, have, so we have those local level committees, and then we have the provincial level committees as well. And then it's important also to, um, to differentiate between three different periods. So for the first six days, um, there are there is the first wave of committees that establish themselves, proclaim, proclaim the revolution. Um, once it becomes clear that the revolutionaries are actually on the back foot and that they don't have support in the rest of Spain, um, there is a wobble, there is a crisis, and um, in fact, the provincial committee decrees kind of um, a, a retreat. Um, But the militias keep fighting, um, which may be a question of lack of communication. Um, And some of the local committees um, do um, dissolve themselves, do disappear. Um, And they are, and including the provincial um, committee itself, and they are um, replaced by a kind of more radical wave of of committees of younger socialists and communists. Um, But this only lasts for a day. Um, before it's replaced by a kind of a more moderate final phase. And this is the one led by Bellarmina Tomas. Um, And he is the one who eventually kind of sues for, sues a kind of, organizes a kind of of surrender with the the army itself.
1: So during, mostly during the first, like the, the first six days, that first committee, what was their goal? Uh, you know, from reading your book, it seems pretty ambiguous, perhaps a bit unrealistic, which you know happens a lot with these revolutionary movements. So w- what were they hoping to achieve in those first six days when they thought something was possible?
2: I suppose my way of looking at the revolution itself is very much as a contradictory and multifaceted um, um, phenomenon. And so which, I think there's often been a tendency amongst historians to try and pin a kind of a, a single word onto what the revolution was and what it wanted to achieve. And and I I, I suppose I tried to do that to begin with and then realised in some respects it was quite a futile um, exercise. And I think if if you look, if you go back to the fact that this is a socialist um, organised um, movement um, and it was, and the, the plans were set for a kind of revolutionary movement that was very hazily defined over the previous months. Um, in his memoirs, Lago Caballero, the organizer um, details some of the, um, the instructions that were given out to the, um, g- given to lo- local socialist organizations, which talk about, you know, seizing bridges and seizing telecommunications and ensuring control locally. But it's not really clear in that what he actually wanted. And I suppose my, my interpretation of what he wanted from a national level was for this movement to be subordinate, I think, to national level political concerns. And so the insurrection or the movement is sparked by the arrival of the Feather, so this large um, Catholic um, right-wing political um, party, it's ascent to power and enters government for the first time, which is interpreted as a threat to the Republic. And so I think what Lago Caballero want, wants to see is a show of strength by socialists, a some kind of kind of revolutionary strike that paralyzes the country and that either leads to some sort of government crisis and the Feda have to leave, um, government's dissolved and new one appointed uh, or even the end of the legislature itself and, and new elections somehow. I think that what, that's what he wants. So I think from, from Madrid, the order is for a strike and that seems pretty clear. But what happens in Asturias, of course, is not really um, a strike at all, even though it's often called as a strike in the wider scholarship. So I think on the ground, it's it's quite ambiguous. I think when you look at the rhetoric of the committees themselves, um, there are clearly some very enthusiastic um, local militants who who are in charge of writing these um, these these proclamations that talk about building a new society uh, about. Um, Proc- they proclaim revolution and they talk about banning money and they do ban money in some areas. So they're really trying to change the kind of the social and economic fabric of, of the coal Valleys themselves. At the same time it's difficult I think as a historian looking back on it as well in the sense that it's also an insurrection and um, I'm, I'll, I'll use the word civil war or use the word Term civil war, even though it's quite tendentious to use this in the context of the Second Republic. Um, in the sense that what the Asturians are also doing, they're fighting government forces in, in, the, in, the, in the capital, Oviedo, and what they're trying to do, therefore, is wage a war effort, and therefore centralising food pr- um, distribution, um, giving out food with a voucher system, to an extent, is revolutionary, but it's also about waging a war effort. So it's not kind of clear, through their practice, what they're trying to do. Um, either. And, and it's also, in, in, and if you, if you go to particular examples, and there's a fascinating example in Labiana, um, high up in the coal fields as well, which is really interesting. Um, and it, it shows how kind of paradoxical um, this particular movement was, I suppose, like any revolution. So they banned money, they tried to stop people using money. Um, but at the same time, they organized, these, and I, I, when I say they, I mean the Revolutionary Committee, they organized a collection for local shopkeepers to ensure they didn't go bust, and um, to ensure that they would have some money at the end of this. So there's this 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 a, a, a combination of kind of revolutionary ideals about how you put some kind of left-wing utopia into practice or call it into being in, in the present day. But at the same time, there's an attempt to kind of not destroy the foundations of local um society. So on the one hand you have a couple of miners who are potentially throwing their tools away and saying right that's it you know we've now reached the kind of the socialist utopia and at the same time the unions are trying to keep the blast furnaces warm so they don't cool and crack and they're trying to keep the mines from filling with water because they know they will need um, to keep the um, economy going. So there's lots of different things I think going on um, for, the, for those first few days. I think there are genuine desires for revolution amongst some I'm not sure whether the leaders really thought that um, a revolution was possible. There's a scene um, with, with one of the socialists, um, the veteran, Asturian socialists, um, in which he's described as um, receiving prisoners that the, the, the militia patrols have made. They've arrested local um, rightists and they bring them before him in a sort of kind of for, for him to, to enact revolutionary judgment. Um, and he' basically frees them all he 's clearly he 's not convinced by this idea of of you know of, of, of a new revolutionary society with a new system of um, of, of justice. but the militias are quite happy with this they 've kind of they they have gone through the motions of of enacting revolutionary justice um so I think there are elements of revolution in in there i 'm not sure kind of what if it had lasted longer what would have become of it um but certainly, um, certainly, it's a paradoxical and a, and a contradictory, multifaceted um, movement and moment.
1: Interesting. Uh, so, as things were moving towards their conclusion, you mentioned there's a sort of a third wave of committees, and they negotiate a surrender, which seems pretty positive, considering how some of these things end. Uh, how was that process like, and, and were those negotiations sort of honored on the other side of... Of the termination of hostilities I guess.
2: Yeah it's, it's a strange, it's a very strange thing to have happened really and I suppose it, it brings me back to the point of, of this being almost like a mini civil war um, but from, and I think we can think about it in two, in two different contradictory ways to an extent, that on, on the one hand a civil war, civil wars are usually incredibly violent and they don't usually end with a, a peaceful sort of truce um, and therefore it doesn 't make it seem like a civil war at the same time, this does seem like a war in the sense that you have the government forces um, recognizing almost the legitimate um, authority of the revolutionary um, authorities themselves, which is seems pretty bizarre but basically I mean what happens, what happens is um, the revolutionaries are on the back foot after the first week they've they 've lost um, Oviedo. Um and a particular and a particularly important moment is when they gain and they they, they seize the arms factory in Oviedo, but there aren 't the arms that they expected that are already been moved um so it 's pretty clear that they 're going to struggle from there on in um, re- army reinforcements arrive, and so they get pushed back so they 're pushed out of the capital and they 're pushed towards the coal fields. The advantage that they have is that these are steep sided narrow um, um valleys that they know inside out, so they are incredibly defensible and this is um, kind of the, this, the, the bargaining chip that the revolutionaries have. The reason that they want or they wish to sue for some sort of um, surrender or some sort of agreement is um, mainly attributed to the, the reports of the violence by the armed forces on the population of Oviedo of itself so reports filter through of um, the actions of the army in, in, in places like the outskirts of Oviedo itself where there is widespread looting um, sexual violence and the killing of um, civilians themselves so this this basically um, this violence um, Almost to an extent, forces the hand of the revolutionaries to say, "Okay, you, you, you know, if we can reach some sort of agreement, maybe um, this won't happen in the coal fields themselves." And so, one of the one of the stipulations is that the, the colonial troops that form part of this column that they won't enter as part of the vanguard because they but they're perceived to be particularly um, to be particularly violent. So basically, the, um, and, uh, there is an aspect to this as well in which there is, there, you know, you have a bold revolutionary re- leader who is willing to cross the lines um, incognito in order to um, um, negotiate with the head of the armed forces. And I think the general, um, López Ochoa, who is relatively liberal um, compared with some of his subordinates at least and, and the other um, military leaders that he's working with. Um, and compared with General, General Franco in Madrid, who's coordinating the operations. I think he, it seems that he admires it, um, the, the kind of the, the, the revolutionary leader for, for in fact doing that. Um, and he agrees um, to a, a, um, a, kind of, a kind of a pact of surrender. So what this means is um, the armed forces will enter the coal fields on the 19th of October, so two weeks after the movement began. Um, and the revolutionaries will um, leave behind the arms um, that they, um, they have been using. And in fact, what you see in Mieres, which is one of the towns, an important town in the coal fields, uh, and which also seems quite slightly bizarre, is that um, a transitional authority was appointed. So the, revo- the revolution- local revolutionary committee, in fact, hands over power to a former local kind of politician, notable. Um, prisoners are freed um, and a lot of the revolutionaries kind of melt into the night, I suppose, and, and flee. Um, but there is not, it doesn't descend into an orgy of violence um, when in, 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 at that moment in time. So the 19th of October the, um, the army enters the coal fields, many of the revolutionaries have, have fled, um, several hundred do end up in exile over the, over the coming weeks and months. Um, but the occupation is much more violent and would be, mo- that, well, much more violent than that surrender would, would perhaps indicate. Um, there is the looting and torching of the political and cultural centres of the left. Um, there are episodes of extrajudicial killing, um, although these are, are more limited um, than during the military operations to end it itself. Um, so more, more limited than during um, the taking of Alviedo. But over the coming weeks, there are mass roundups. There are beatings. There is a widespread use of torture in detention. Um, most closely associated with someone called Lizardo Doval, um, nicknamed the Jackal, and the and the obsession with the with the armed forces um, in in these arrests, um, in these beatings and torture is where are the arms? So where, where have the revolutionaries left all of the arms? Uh, and where is the money? Um, because the during the assault on Oviedo, um, and just before the retreat, um, the revolutionaries had broken into, the, the, broken into a bank and broken into a vault and taken uh, a large sum of money. So it was, where, where is this money? Um, and thousands ended up in jail um, uh, um, after this. And so, uh, and then in addition to that, locally, there were also blanket dismissals from jobs. So all of the mine workers were sacked, all of the steel workers um, there was an introduction of ID cards to allow workers um, um, to actually regain their job. There was a purge of teachers and the local administration. So it, it is both violence, but also completely kind of restructures the local labour mar- market and, and also um, questions of, of sociability as well. Cultural centers are completely um, shut down or turn into sites of torture as well.
1: Okay, so what happens with the, the mines? Like, you know, the, the, the workers who work there were part of the unions and, and now they don't. Uh, did they bring in other people or? I think
2: there, there is a certain... I'm, I'm not actually aware of, of, of inward migration to an extent. Um What you have I think are are a number of workers who are able to at least navigate this context um, and regain their jobs. Um, There is a case of a um, a civil guardsman, so one of the policemen, um, who basically was, as as the mine workers were filing... um, up to them to the mind to basically ask for their jobs back he would he would basically sit there and he would vet all of them individually and he was basically looking for those who had attacked the civil guard post when he the, and, and the, the the attack that he basically survived so i think there were as, as long as you weren't one of the leaders then it was probably possible to slip through the cracks itself and the fact that you do see some attempts at strikes were quite difficult to organize in a uh, in a situation in which trade unions and left-wing political parties are banned, and there's no press either locally, um, really in 1935, that can, and they can't talk about strikes. There's no left-wing press that can talk about strikes. Um, it's therefore uh, there. There is an organisation, but it's it, it's underground, not very well articulated. But there are some strikes itself. So I think I think that indicates that yes, mine workers could continue to work even though they've been members of the trade union. It's just it was um, very difficult to do so if you were one of the leaders itself. Okay. And of course one of the things is that actually it takes a long time for production to be ramped up. So it's not as if, it takes a long time for miners to mines to actually reopen and the same with the steelworks. Even months after the insurrection you don't see the same amount of production. So um, the same amount of mine workers was not needed.
1: Okay, uh, so. After the revolution was over, uh, obviously you know, by that point, talking about 1935, uh, during the occupation, we're very close to another large event in Spanish history. So were there any uh, sort of lessons that were learned during this event that, that would alter the course of, of what people would do at the beginning of the Spanish Civil War? Uh, was there like a legacy there of these, this revolution in Asturias that was considered um, during future events?
2: The, the relationship between, uh, uh, of the insurrection to the Civil War is a very interesting question, and I, I think, and it's one that scholars really don't like to talk about a lot, and I think this is because if, you, if we fast forward, if we fast forward to the end of the Spanish Civil War basically, um, and, and the, 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 the victorious, or not quite yet victorious Francoists, um, introduce a law called the law of political responsibilities which backdates in many ways the beginning of the Spanish Civil War. Um, retrospectively support for the left um, as well as um, um, fighting in the Asturian October or any kind of event from October 1934 to July 1936 is folded into the Civil War and therefore this this period becomes one of kind of revolutionary activity that justified the war um, itself from a Francoist point of view. So it's very difficult at times, for, so historians have been very reticent to draw kind of any parallels between 1934 and, and 1936. At the same time, it's I think often the place of Asturias in the context of the Republic as a whole is underplayed that we have this two-week insurrection, 1500 die, um, it is massively important as a turning point in some respects for uh, for the republic as a whole, and it's clearly it's, sub- it's, it's crucial to pol- the political events over the subsequent well, over subsequent uh, months. So the importance of amnesty, so an amnesty for the prisoners for these thousands who've been thrown into jail for participating in um, the Asturian October. Um, and so this is hugely. I think this this is the most powerful motor behind the the victory of the Popular Front in February nineteen thirty six, um, and but also for the right, the revolution gives or or, or provides a um, kind of material proof of the threat of revolution itself, um, and the memory of Red Asturias um, the. The, the the threat of Bolshevism on on Spanish soil can be kind of it, it can be invoked in, in over the course of, of the uh, um, election campaign and this idea of the army as central to law and order and as guardian of the patria I think I think is it pre it predates nineteen thirty four but I think it really becomes cemented um, by the insurrection itself so I think in the the, the insurrection is important to kind of to political polarization on a kind of on a national level um, and to and to providing the kind of the the energy behind the election campaign in in 1956, and and also in to an extent, in explaining kind of the the results, the, the support for for each side, um. But I think it also provides a lot of kind of the language, the political language, and the political coordinates of that time as well, and also prefigures some of of Francoism in 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 that respect, um, in terms of what Francoist identity, um, would be. Ironically, I think. So, uh, well, so, uh, one, of, one of the interesting things about the the Asturian October is that despite it being um, a left-wing insurrection, what it does it is it is the end of left-wing insurrectionism in Spain to an extent. Um, the anarchists distance, distance themselves from using um, um, insurrectionary methods in spring 1936. Um, the socialists have shelved it um, as well, despite their kind of their radical rhetoric. And I think in, in Asturias itself, in 1936, um, the, the Asturian October is critical to how left-wing militants see themselves and see one another. And, and ironically, this leads to a certain amount of crisis and fragmentation locally, um, because a lot of people have not do not live up to the revolutionary myth, understandably. Um, a lot of people have been broken by the repression. Um, or did not stand on the barricade at the right moment in time in 1934, and these people are denounced or boycotted, um, or have to have to prove their worth again in 1936. So locally, it's quite a, a, a fractious, um, fractious time. So certainly, there is an important legacy of, of the um, of the insurrection itself, um, and 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 in terms of of providing, I suppose, the the experience of kind of revolutionary collaboration, um, um, revolutionary cooperation amongst the left, which will be seen during the Civil War um, itself.